I'd like to put a question in your mind right to start um, today's talk off. And uh, we'll, we'll refer to this as we go along. I'm not going to have a show of hands or anything. I'm just going to lay it in your mind, which would be this. Uh, as Christians, are we supposed to be optimistic or pessimistic about the future? As Christians, are we supposed to be optimistic? So I'm right in your face here, Jonathan. <laughs> Jonathan, what do you think? No, I'll go back here. Sorry, I know my place. Um, are we supposed to be optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Now, I, I would imagine your knee-jerk reaction to that question may well be based upon your personality type. When we talk about optimists and pessimists, we often talk about particular types of people. Some who will always fear the worst uh, in any situation and others who seem to charge ahead with reckless abandon assuming that everything's going to be fine or whatever uh, evidence there is to the contrary. But of course there are uh, problems as we would all know to both of those extreme approaches to life. For the pessimist generally on an extreme end of those sort of things uh, a pessimist would risk losing all hope at all and abandoning the possibility that they could ever do anything constructive to help the future woe is me a kind of Eeyore kind of character and that's not a particularly great way to live on the one hand yet the optimist while they might be uh, happy and cheery and kind of motivated some of the time uh, when they come across problems, even quite small problems actually, uh, they haven't accounted for, sometimes they can completely lose the plot and be even more of uh, a problem than the pessimists could. So we recognise, all of us recognise, both of those extremes are not great. And we'd all say, if you were giving the smug answer to that question, well, I'm a realist. Who says that? It's just smug. Okay. But we all do want to be realistic. And to be realistic, it means when we look to the future, we need to have a foundation that's based upon more than our personality or even what we'd like to happen. And uh, the great news for us as Christians is that God, uh, in his word, and throughout history really, uh, in other ways too, has been always shown himself very, very keen on preparing us in advance for what should happen in the future, in helping us to see, look, this is a picture of what's happening in the future and this is how you should prepare for it okay now uh, in today's passage which we're continuing on from last week we're as Jonathan mentioned earlier we're going through Luke's gospel we're in Luke 21 again today Uh, Jesus is doing exactly this thing for his first disciples. He's informing them what's to come and he's encouraging them to prepare themselves now in the light of what the future holds for them. And uh, as I'm going to show, and Lincoln, if you were here last week, you'll see it links up. If you weren't, don't worry, you'll be able to pick it up as as we go along. Um, Behind the quite specific predictions in this passage, there is an understanding from Jesus of of the deep things about the character of God and how God interacts with the world as it is and uh, those things are exactly as true for us today as they would have been back then uh, in in kind of 30 uh, AD or so and I'd like to look at this passage today and see how Jesus then prepared his disciples uh, for the future and see what we can learn for this to prepare ourselves for the times ahead of us and overcome in the times we find ourselves in today so that's the general plan and the passage is in Luke 21 5 to 36 we're going to go back over the two verses we did last week that's okay with you Um, you'll see this passage it is quite long. It's, gonna, it's quite dense. We're not going to deal with everything here, but I think we'll be able to get to the root and the heart of this and apply this to ourselves. Okay. So Luke chapter 21, 5 to 36. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, When will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, Watch out that you are not deceived. 
For many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison and you'll be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But, I make, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You'll be betrayed, even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch, and pray that you may be able to escape all that's about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of God. Okay, as we go through there, I'll just give you a moment to take it all in. If you've got a Bible, it's quite handy to have this in front of you today, although different bits hopefully at the right moment will flash up behind you. Not flash, that would be really inappropriate, but you know what I mean. Um, but some of it, as we've gone through it, might have seemed a little bit confusing. Um, but actually, the main theme of this passage, I think, is reasonably straightforward, and we need to get a bearing, and anchor on that uh, before we deal with some of the other little bits. Jesus' teaching here, as I said last week, is based on a question. And that question is very specific. The question is, Jesus, here's this temple. We are admiring it. You have said it's going to be destroyed. When will that actual physical event take place? And uh, whatever else is in here, we must keep hold of that anchor and not assume that Jesus is veering from that theme, very soon to come history, for, uh, soon to come future for these guys, uh, unless we actually have to. And the vast majority of the passage is pretty straightforward if you take that as, as the theme. So just whizzing through it quickly. First of all, Jesus warns his disciples that there'll be a time of waiting. It's not going to happen straight away. In fact, even it seems to be saying there'll be some people who come and want to force the issue, misunderstand Jesus' teaching, say, look, let's do it ourselves. Don't follow those guys. No, no, it's, it's not going to happen straight away. It's not going to happen through your effort. No, um, also, you might 
come to all sorts of conclusions from the rumors of unrest and things going on in the world around you. Jesus is saying, look, those things will happen, but even then they're happening, those are not necessarily signs the end is just yet. There's a wait, there's a period of waiting uh, for you. And then uh, the time of waiting, Jesus wants to tell his disciples, uh, won't be comfortable. So it'll be a time of great persecution for Jesus' followers. Persecution when people suffer for the fact that they are a Christian. And Jesus is very, very clear as he is on many occasions and the gospel writer, the epistle writers in the New Testament are as well, that this is a regular to be expected feature of Christian life. And finally then, after this wait, in the midst of all this persecution, then that day will come. And uh, that day will be, be triggered by armies surrounding Jerusalem. And what Jesus is saying is that when you see those armies, not before, but when you see them, that's your sign Think of what I'm saying now. He's saying to them, log it away, tell your kids, when you see that, get out. Get out as quick as you can uh, because the whole of Jerusalem is going down. And uh, we know from ancient history that this is exactly how things played out. In 66 AD, there was a Jewish rebellion against their Roman rulers uh, and the Jewish forces did quite well to start with, uh, but the might of the Roman Empire pushes in on them and by 68 AD, Uh, Exactly as Jesus said, uh, Jerusalem is surrounded by Roman armies. Actually, at that point, there is a delay. There's a near civil war in Rome where Nero, Emperor Nero, commits suicide. There's four emperors in the year 69, and their their attention is swayed there. So there's a break. Actually, interestingly, Jesus even prophesies that. That's why they have a chance to get out. You'd have thought if if Jerusalem's surrounded, how are they going to get out? Well, actually, the, the troops backed off a little bit. Desolation is near. It doesn't happen at that point. However, once that's all sorted, uh, Titus, who was a main general under the new emperor Vespasian in 70 AD, he breaks through the city walls, he kills thousands of people, uh, he enslaves the rest, he burns the city to the ground, including uh, the temple, as we talked about last week. That was a very final uh, act in that case. And Jesus states categorically in this passage, that is what he's talking about. That's his focus. Verse 32, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Okay. Then with this picture of the future laid out, he therefore instructs them, therefore on the base of this, this is how you live now in the base of this. Jesus' interest here is not in filling our heads with information or filling his disciples' heads with information. He's preparing them. He cares for these guys and he wants them to be ready and not thrown by these events that are going on. And we'll look at those instructions a little bit later. Now, with that as the basic backbone and the general theme, which seems pretty fair enough, uh, what do we do, though, with some of the more odd parts of the passage that don't necessarily seem to fit in, the, in that scheme of things? For example, verses 25 to 27, which I think will fit, appear behind us uh, there. Uh, in the historical records of the destruction of Jerusalem, there is no mention from any of the historians involved of tidal waves, of stars falling from the sky, or of Jesus riding on any clouds. It's just not there. I mean, whatever you think of historians, you'd have thought if that happened at that time, they may have noticed those things. Well, it appears they either weren't very observant or actually there's something else going on here uh, rather than just uh, literally what's being said uh, and this applying in the same way as I've said. What's going on? How do we put these things together? Well, it seems that what Jesus is doing 
as he's prophesying about the future, he's prophesying about a very specific event. It's as he goes, he, he then starts reaching beyond that event to talk about, well, I'm talking about the end of the temple, but there's a sense in which, uh, like full of the Spirit, he starts looking ahead and saying, and this actually is going to serve as something of a blueprint for another end, a more final end, the actual end of all things, the end of the world, and starts hinting in that direction. And while that's not his main point here, he does go uh, to, that, to that to a degree. You might think, well, that's a little bit odd. Well, it might seem odd to us, but this would be how prophecy works throughout the Bible. If you're reading, it's helpful for us as we read the Bible to understand these things. Uh, any of the Old Testament prophets or the book of Revelation, if you've been in that, you'll have had some fun with beasts coming out of the sea and all sorts of things. Well, those books as well do exactly the same thing. And people start talking about something that's quite soon to happen in Revelation. It's, again, specifically about the Roman Empire, a lot of it. But then as, as, as they're going, full of the Spirit, then it starts kind of transposing it on the future. And it's like the prophet is talking instantly about a single event, it seems. And then before you know it, multiple events seem to be happening. So, and the point is, well, this is happening. This will happen, literally. But this event in the future is going to be similar in some ways. This is something of a blueprint of this other event that's happening in the future. And so with that in mind then, um, as Jesus is teaching his disciples here, there is a direct relevance also for Christians who live in the final generation on planet Earth. Okay? Those who live just before Jesus returns and the whole thing gets wrapped up. Okay? Now, because it is clear in the Bible that we don't know when that time will be, that means there is a sense in which, well, that's applicable to any of us because Jesus could come back in our generation. Now, I know I'm likely to be thought less of at this point, and I'm sorry, but I like to, I like to be honest with you guys. When I've heard that sort of thing before in the sermon, I thought, okay then, so that means if we're the last generation of Christians, this is relevant to us, and if not, not so much. I've often thought, I'll probably take my chance on that one, actually. <laughs> Statistically, people have been saying this for a couple of thousand years, I might be all right. I confess, I'm not, I'm not proud of it. You know, I've just, I have those thoughts have crossed my mind. Okay, and you guys are better of a higher caliber than me, obviously. But um, maybe, just maybe, some of you might be tempted to think similarly. Now, the Bible's clear, Jesus could come back whenever, but he hasn't come back for 2,000 years. Now, if that thought's in your mind, actually, that still doesn't get us off the application of this passage because it's not the only reason this passage is relevant to us. It's not just relevant for generation in that time, 70 AD, and the very end of the world, whenever that may be. Okay, actually, there are principles here that are important for all Christians in helping us to have a right and a realistic, not a wishful thinking or a doom and gloom, but a realistic view of the future, whether Jesus comes back tomorrow or in 10,000 years. Okay. Now, for us too, we should have a balanced view about the future. On one hand, yes, very, not just optimistic, but full of hope for a glorious unfolding of God's purposes in the long term. Okay? We, we, that's on one side. But actually, I don't know if you knew, but in the short term, we should have a sober expectation of trouble. As Christians, we should be well aware that around the corner is likely to be trouble, perhaps even significant days of trouble, like the first Christians had to deal with. The New Testament writers often, the tone of what's being said often, is saying, yet you've got to be clear. This is part of being a Christian. Trouble is coming. You've got to be aware of that. Paul said to, this is how Paul encouraged the first churches. Through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom. That was his message to, to the Christians. You think, well, that's a bit, a bit scary, isn't it? No, if they knew realistically this is what we should expect. No, you need to be ready. It will be worse if you're not ready. 
Paul said as well, if we share in his sufferings, we also share in his glory. This is part and parcel of things that are going on here. Ephesians 6.13 gives a, a, a very strong example of this. Paul writing puts this in a passage that many of us would be familiar with. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand. A lot of us would know a bit about the armor of God. There's some stuff about praying there, some stuff about faith, righteousness, all very useful all of the time. So why should we put on the armor of God? Well, surely that's just a good thing, generally, isn't it? Well, yes, of course it is. Paul wouldn't have disagreed with that. But what's his specific focus? Well, his specific focus is, look, guys, you've got to understand, it's very, very likely for you that that day will come for you when the day of evil comes. He thought for the Ephesian Christians that there was likely to be days of concentrated trouble ahead that they needed to prepare for then in the, in the, in the present. I think, therefore, when Jesus says in our passage today, in in verse 35, that day will come on all those who live on the face of the earth, I think he'd be expressing a, a similar sentiment. Living in a world like ours, holding beliefs that we hold, and with a God like there is ruling things, we should expect our own that day to come most likely in our lifetimes and be ready for it. We, we can't give detail. Not, it's like this is going to happen on this. But we need to have that at least in our armory of our, a category for that as we work out how to approach the future. We cannot just go forward on wishful thinking. You know, just really important to say this at this point. This verse uh, 9 of our passage needs to be something of a banner over all of this. Because I reckon some people could think, well, wait a minute, I've got to, I don't want to fear the worst all the time. Jesus was like, yes, I don't want you to fear the worst all the time either. Verse 9, he says very clearly, right up at the front, do not be frightened. Okay, hear this, do not be frightened. Jesus' plan is not to scare us into just quivering wrecks in the corner. No, no, what he wants to do is for us to soberly square up to reality and prepare ourselves to be, to be at a stand, but also to be a force of good in that day. Now, this could come, this trouble, this day, uh, so to speak, putting it metaphorically, could come in all sorts of ways. We live in a fallen world. Troubles come to us. Uh, the media and advertising would like to present to us, everything's fine, everything's going to be brilliant. Okay? We mustn't let that sink in and just be a, our standard position. No, we know, we understand things about the world. We, we calculate things about that. And those things happen. We live in a fallen world. We, we know about persecutions mentioned uh, in this passage here. Um, they happen. We should, be, we should factor that into our equations. We, we, we see that more and more and probably will as time goes on. We, we factor in the work of an enemy. We have an enemy. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, it says. Okay? We factor all those things in. But actually, I want to focus on another type of trouble that seems to be Jesus' main concern in this passage here. And uh, that type of uh, trouble is, is when he gets to the root of what this, this day, that day is in this passage. You find it in verse 22, and it's slightly different to any of those. Verse 22, I mentioned it last week. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. That day for the disciples was to be very clear a day of God's punishment on people. Jesus had an understanding that God worked out his punishment, even his judgment on nations and individuals, not just after we die, but now. In human history, in the space-time continuum, in, in our lives. Jesus had a category for something that is known as the wrath of God. And it educated his view of the whole world, including how he viewed the future. 
And the minute I say that word even, I want to say straight away, I know that's not a very nice thought. I know that, that certainly that word wrath is not very trendy, uh, Christian or outside of Christian circles. And because of that, we need to get our heads around it and understand what it means and what it doesn't mean. I want to give some time to that, okay? Not to dwell on it because, ha-ha, this is the most important thing about God and you will cower and fall. No, we've got to understand this, okay? We can't just shy away from it because it's not nice, Okay, so what, is, what does it mean when it talks in the Bible of God's wrath, or his punishment, his judgment? Well, let's begin by explaining what the wrath of God isn't. For many, they would understand this term to refer to sort of petulant outbursts of divine rage. So it would be as if God wakes up one morning, feeling a bit off, a bit of a bad mood, sees something annoys him, grabs the nearest lightning bolt, kaboom! There you have it, there is wrath, wrath of God right there. Okay? Um, now that's exactly not what is not meant by this term in the Bible. Okay? This, this sense of kind of rash, just sudden, spontaneous acts of rage, that's not it at all. Wrath in the Bible is, is the opposite. It's very considered, not action, but a state. A state of being, and it's a state of considered opposition and hostility. To be under God's wrath means for God to be opposed to you. It's not something suddenly a flash idea. No, it's considered position. It's opposed to all that you are and all that you stand for. Now you might have thought, oh, he's, he's not going down the lightning bolt route. That means this is going to be easier for us. No, this is not easier. I'm just, I'm not, I'm just trying to say how it is. And it's terrifying. I cannot think of a more terrifying scenario than the one who made everything as ultimate power Actually, being on the other side to me, being opposed to me. And because it's such a, such a it, I'll be honest, it's an awful prospect, we as Christians cannot take this lightly. And that means on one hand, uh, I, I don't like the way this term has been overused, and it's overused somewhere, and it's sort of bandied around with this sense of glee just to get Christians to be scared or other people to be scared into doing the things that the person wants them to do. We can't do that. That's treating it lightly. That's not matching up to the seriousness of what this is. But at the same time, it's equally inappropriate to leave this subject as a sort of elephant in the room that we really think and hope will just go away. That's not taking it seriously as well. The Bible talks about this a lot, and it maps this out. It's not the information that's not there. It makes it very clear. First point on this is that we are all naturally under God's wrath. Be a blanket point in the Bible. Paul in Ephesians 2 verse 3, like the rest... We were by nature objects of wrath. It's pretty comprehensive. Like the rest would include everyone. By nature would mean it's not just some small little quirks that we have that we could easily iron out just to get out of this stick that we're in. No, actually, it's by nature we're objects of wrath. Now, the obvious question then is, how on earth do we get ourselves into this terrible mess? Well, the Bible's clear throughout that we brought God's opposition onto us through our sin. Like the very first humans, we've all rebelled against God in our hearts. We've decided to live for ourselves, not for him. And the result is not just that when we die, we experience his judgment. But right now, we put ourselves and God in a state of enmity. It's like we draw a line in the sand and we stand on one side and he's on the other. And we are opposed to him. We say, I don't want to live for you, thank you very much. I'm living for me. I'm, I'm in charge. I'm the boss here. We're opposed to God. Actually, the same is true on the other side. Then God, on the other side, is therefore opposed to us. Now, this is obviously a heavy thought. This is a serious business. And there any serious business? I think there's a, there's a real tendency. I think 
pumped to us from so many angles. If something's serious and heavy, forget it. Just don't go there. Just think nice, happy thoughts. You get it? It's like the Disney approach to life, okay? We've got to be careful of the Disney approach to life. If you take that approach to life, you will never read your Bible because it often pushes us on to think about this. This is serious. Because when we look around the world around us, I don't know if you've noticed, this world's serious. It's not Disney. It's not in kind of 2D color. This is serious. And one reason I don't think we should rush on or to, too quickly from this, or we should shy away from this sort of idea, is because if we don't understand the seriousness of our position without Jesus, we'll never fully appreciate his rescue, which is primarily from this awful situation. Because the good news of Christianity, and it is good news, is that Jesus died and rose again to save us from the wrath of God. Romans 5, 9 to 10 is just a beautiful description of the, the seriousness, but the wonder of what Jesus has done for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, by Jesus' death on the cross, how much more shall we save from God's wrath through him? For if we remember God's enemies, when he was on the other side of that line, we were reconciled to him, brought onto the same side of the line to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved through his life? When Jesus died on the cross, he felt the full force of the Father's wrath against rebellious humanity on him. He didn't deserve any of it. He took it all on us. He paid our punishment. If you have an idea of punishment, you won't understand the payment. Okay, he paid our punishment. And for those who follow Jesus, not only is our punishment paid, our relationship with God is completely transformed. From opposition and hostility to unremitting, unrelenting, unstoppable favor. It's a complete turn. It's not just I get a ticket to heaven. That's a complete change of state going on here. If you're not a Christian here today, maybe it's your first time with us. You picked a good one <laughs> to come to. It's not like this every week. I think I say that most weeks, actually, <laughs> going through Luke's gospel. But no, great to have you here. We wel- welcome you here. And I recognize this. You think, you probably think, what planet are these guys on? I honestly didn't think Christians still went on about this stuff. But you know what? Well, it doesn't get much heavier than this. You've come at the kind of the heaviest point it could be. At the same time, in a sense, it doesn't get much better than this. We're dealing with the very heart of matters today. If you want to know about God, if you want to get rid of all the bump, I don't care about the fluff. What is this about? This is what this is about. Serious, and it's beautiful. The Bible pulls no punches regarding our position if we choose to live our lives as our own bosses. It really doesn't. But it offers such hope and such joy and such blessing because of what Jesus has done if we choose to follow him. Please don't miss the opportunity to investigate what this means. It could be for you that it's unrealistic to say to you, well, come and follow Jesus today. You just don't know enough. I understand that. But don't miss the opportunity to investigate. Come and ask questions. Ask about the Bible study groups. We'll be starting in a few weeks. Come and talk to us. We wouldn't want you to miss out on what Jesus offers, particularly when we consider the stakes that seem to be on the table in all this. Switching attention to you guys who are Christians here for a moment. I need to underline something in a massive marker pen at this point. When we consider God's wrath as Christians, and we should do, we take it seriously, but we must be absolutely clear of one thing. That as Christians, we are not and will never again be under the wrath of God. Do you know that? It's gone. That's the past. Like the rest of you, we were objects of wrath. We are no longer under his wrath. Now, God can discipline us for our good, yeah? And he can test us for our good. But notice the 
the two things, the thing that's ties them together, is for our good. He acts for our good. He will never, again for a Christian, trick you, punish you, or harm you in an act of hostility. Never again. You might think, yeah, but, but you don't know what I did. Last week, I've done this. This morning I'm coming, I'm, I want to be on my knees. Please, God, don't strike me with, an, with a lightning bolt because I've done some bad things this week. Remember the song we sing, In Christ Alone, that on that cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied because every sin on him was laid. Some of you know that song. You've got to sing it. You remember those words. Every sin, every sin you did last week, every sin you did before you became a Christian, every sin you're doing next week, all laid on Jesus. The wrath of God satisfied. It's dealt with. There's no more wrath left to spill over onto you. If you think, well, where's the wrath, where's the wrath going to come from? Jesus dealt with it. You've seen how bad things get. You've seen the cross. We'll look at it when we come back to Luke's gospel in a few months. Never again. It's not as that's the offer Jesus gives. We never come to him thinking, is he for us? Is he against us? Is he going to smite me? No, he loves you. You're his son or his daughter. When you consider the future, that's absolutely vital to hold on to. When you consider anything, that's the number one priority for us as Christians. This might sound like a strange thing, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't factor in a consideration of God's wrath and punishment when considering the future. And here's where we see the link with this passage. I'll explain what I mean. Jesus was not warning his disciples and saying, in 30 years' time, God is going to punish you lot for messing things up. You better get yourselves straight and sort yourselves out in the meantime. No, no, these guys had accepted Jesus. They recognized God's coming. They had, uh, to use Jesus' phrase, they had allowed him, they were willing to be gathered under his wing like a, a mother hen gathers her chicks. That's the image Jesus used. But they still had to prepare to deal with God's punishment. Why? Well, things don't seem to match up. Well, the simple answer is this. They lived in a culture that itself was under God's wrath and was suffering the consequences of that. And Jesus effectively is warning them that, look, you're Christians. It doesn't mean you're of the world, but you are in the world. And as the world is under the judgment of God for what it's doing and for not accepting me, well, you're going to experience the fallout of that punishment. You're in the mix here. You've got to be ready for this. And this is vitally relevant for us today. I found, uh, talking to many Christians, that up to now, there's difficult stuff. But on the whole, most Christians say, yeah, okay, I'll kind of go with that stuff. But when it comes to how God's wrath then plays itself out in the lives of, of those around us, there is a general fuzziness. I mean, could we say that God's wrath reveals itself like that? I mean, how does that work? I think there's a sense in which that reticence is understandable and actually not, uh, not a bad thing. We definitely don't want to get ourselves in the mess that some people have done uh, all through time, particularly recently, I think, where uh, Christians start standing up and start picking certain things that have happened and then matching them with certain sins and saying, oh, God's judging you for that here. Remember last year, one of the more silly examples was the uh, UKIP counsellor, you know where I'm going on this one, I I think, who uh, said that the floods of 2014 were a direct uh, act of God punishment for the legalisation of gay marriage. Not sure where he got that from, but he said it, didn't he? Now, in a sense, that was quite silly. That was more of a kind of novelty bit in the news. There are some more extreme examples. Some Christians have stood up and said, well, this event, this tsunami, this earthquake, this, this, it's because of this big sin. God's judging you, you know. Now, if you're a little bit nervous of that sort of approach, I want to be clear, I I would be the same. I, I think we would be wise to distance ourselves from such unwise pronouncements. But I think we need to be careful we don't go too far. 
For me, my main problem with the UKIP Council or some of them, all those more extreme pronouncements would not be that those claims are impossible. I'm not saying it's impossible. God would never do anything like that. You look at the Bible, you see, well, she does do things like this. No, it's just that we could never know, possibly know, whether they're true or not. So we might as well keep our mouths shut. As I said, all through the Bible, you see in the Old Testament, nations, cities, God says, because of this, I'm, I'm going to come. Like, I can't take this anymore for some reason. Even individuals like Herod Agrippa or Jezebel in the Old Testament, their, their deaths are attributed to God's judgment on them. It, it happens. But at the same time, other things happen. And it's clearly stated, this is nothing to do with the judgment of God. Where did you get that from? And so we can't make these rash connections between individual events and individual sins. We just don't know. But we can be sure generally of this thing. That God's wrath is still an ever-present reality and is being worked out in our day and age. Most helpful passage on this, I think, is found in Romans chapter 1. Again, if you've got a Bible, feel free to turn to it. Relevant things will come up behind me uh, on the screen. But in this passage, Paul explains a very different way to understand in the wrath of God to the lightning bolt, fire from heaven sort of approach. Verse 18 says this, The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Notice the present tense uh, of that passage. It's not something that we just deal with after we die. It's something that is revealed now in people's lives. So you probably think, oh, I know where we're going here then. This passage must be all about lightning bolts and fireballs, smiting people on those, when they do those particularly frowned upon big sins. Actually, as you look through this passage, Paul sees things very differently to that and applies things very differently. He sees the cause for God's wrath, not as, why is God showing wrath? Not as the big brash sins that often people would call out on this sort of stuff. The rampant greed, the misuse of sex, the overconsumption of alcohol or drugs, etc., etc. Now, he doesn't call those ones out and say, that's why God's wrath's coming. Now, he brings attention to the secret sins. The sins you can't point to and go, you've done this and you've done this. Also, that's too close to home, Paul. This verse here is the key one. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man. Of birds, of animals, of reptiles. What's the sin that brings on the wrath of God? Well, it's the subtle and often unthinking relegation of God in our priorities and our affections. For Paul, that's the root. That's the cause. We've all done it. We do it regularly, all the time. That's a big deal for Paul. And it brings God's wrath. It doesn't cause God then, you think, well, how is this wrath shown? It doesn't cause God to fly off the handle and start blowing stuff up. No, his wrath is shown in a very different way. In fact, an even more chilling way. God's response is this, okay then, my opposition is to this, and what I'll do is this. Hands off, I'll step back. phrase that's used in this passage is, he gave them over. He sees this, his wrath is revealed, what does he do? He gave them over to the consequences of what they were doing. Mentions gave them over firstly three times to sexual impurity, to shameful lusts, and to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. That's the consequence. That's how God shows his wrath. For Paul, actually, the big sins, for Paul, especially the sexual sins, are not themselves the cause of God's wrath. They're the result of God's wrath. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Do you see? When we look at society around us, we have to be wise. We have to see what's going on. God's wrath is already being revealed. 
It's already, in a sense, that day. The, the evidence is that he's deliberately allowed us, as a result of our refusal to honor him, to move away from his wisdom and embrace foolishness wholesale that is only going to lead to trouble. The rejection of God's wisdom on all sorts of things. You pick up something, anything from maybe more kind of this year's news, but we could go back years. We've rejected God's wisdom on work and rest. We've rejected it on money and possessions. We've resisted, we've resisted it and rejected it on divorce and sex. We've resisted it and rejected it on how we raise our kids, on how we treat our parents. That's how, as a society, we've gone for years and years and years. And as we see those things, we must conclude, as Jesus said about what would happen in 70 AD, this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. God's punishment has been poured out. It will be continued to be poured out. And while it's not directly on us, it will affect us and those around us. You've seen it already. Mental health problems through the roof. Family breakdown endemic in society. and No one ever even addressing that problem. Schools, hospitals, social services, straining to deal with the pressure. So just meet the targets and having to make it up. Because there's no way you can meet the targets. Should we as Christians be optimistic about the future of our nation? Far from it. We need to prepare for the worst. We don't know what will happen. I can't tell you this day will come and everything's going to fall down. We don't know. Who knows? Hopefully we pray for it. We lay hold of it. God will send revival. He'll, he'll change everything from the ground up. Hopefully that will happen. But you know what? It's not unbelief to say, but you know what? I've got a pretty strong feeling it's probably not going to happen. We pray for that. We lay hold of it. But Jesus tells us, expect trouble. Through many tribulations you enter the kingdom, Paul said. We need to be ready, at least have a category for the possibility that this is going to lead out the way it's leading out now. Whatever the case in the past, we have no basis for thinking that God is somehow on England's side anymore. Does he care for our nation? Does he care for our city? Yeah, you know what? He cares for us deeply. I'm sure he weeps over our city, just as he did over Jerusalem, weeping while in his right hand, ready to strike the whole lot of them. He's not unconcerned. He's not impassive. But he won't stand sin. And he leads foolishness in the direction that it goes. God will not be mocked. Paul writes, a man reaps what he sows. But you might say, you might remember a word I used at the beginning of this talk, which you think this talk has been lacking up to this point. Uh, I think that word was balance somewhere. And I, think, oh, I haven't heard a whole great deal of balance. You seem to be pretty Eeyore on the whole thing, Johnny. Because it's very important to say this. There is hope. And uh, what a hope it is. Yeah, should we be wildly wishful thinking, optimistic about the future? No, definitely not. But in a sense, you know, there is a sense to say we go even beyond that. Because there's a hope for us. And it's a wonderful hope. Look in this passage. Because there is something in this passage beyond the troubles and the disasters. It's a somber, sober passage. But you can see it. It's not the end. It's not the end of the story. Verse 19. Stand firm and you will win life. Verse 28. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Listen, while we understand the seriousness of what is on the horizon or what might well be, we also understand this. The day of evil is not the final word. That day is not the final word. Even God's punishment is not the final word. Beyond that, there's life. 
There's redemption. There's a kingdom with a king who is purging the things that hurt his creation from his creation and will one day bring us into that place to live in that good forever. If uh, you optimists out there feel like I've given you a bit of a battering today, you know, know this. You don't need to judge your view of the future on your uh, hopeful and cheery outlook on life. We can base it on the solid foundation of our hope found in Scripture. It's not fluffy, it's not Disney, no, but it's realistic and it's thorough and it's true, proven through the Jesus who would die for us on the cross. Death and pain does not have the final word. Life and joy do. You know what, don't, don't let anyone take that from you. That's our sure and certain hope. And in the context of all that may be around the corner for us and all that we deal with now, we hold on to that, not just to stop us being gloomy so that we're not known as those slightly depressive Christians who never smile. No, no, we hold on to it to help us get through to the joy on the other side, you see. Jesus' point is he doesn't want us to be tricked by all this stuff so that we don't fully grasp hold of the life that is just racing even just round the next corner. We don't just grin and bear it in the day of evil because we should. We stand firm because we know that whatever winters are coming for us, summer comes next. So let's apply it. And we'll apply it. It's very simple to apply. Jesus' teaching on this and his application it almost needs no comment because it crosses the millennia uh, very easily for us. Verses 34 to 36. I was just going to be up there. I want you just to look at it as I read it. I want you to think about it. The Holy Spirit, what for you? How do you prepare for this? How does this help you? It's very clear language. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and the anxiety of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Two very simple things just to say what's there, just to bring it to your attention really. How do we live in the light of it? We refuse to become attached to the things of this world that could be taken away from us in an instant. We don't get overly attached to pleasure, leisure, comfort, material possessions, money but we live now sold out for Jesus and press on forcefully in our faith. You know, I think, yeah, it's, well, it's not that big deal, is it? Everything seems to be going okay. Yeah, but will you be able to say that if that day came to you? We also look at the end. We reject complacency. We don't take it for granted that we, on our own, can get through whatever's to be thrown at us. We recognize our weakness and we pray that God would preserve us in the days we live in. And if that day comes, that he would mercifully take us through it into the joy on the other side.